The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a hand break off. I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. We have a packed podcast this morning and I'm joined by two of the cognoscenti of the Guna support, the writer for The Athletic, James McNicholas, and our esteemed producer, Teo Papula, who is stepping in because Art de is either out on assignment, picking up the latest juicy bit of gossip from Arsenal, or possibly asleep. Uh, we're not sure which. Uh, good morning, chaps. Morning. Morning, Ian. Morning. I was just saying before we went on air that it's fitting, given what happened with the substitutions last night, <laughs> that we should be waiting for an injection of youthful energy. Um, well, we got Tyo instead. Cast you kind of Willian in this, which I apologise for. But I was going to say this is like actually taking off Saka and bringing on Willian. I can hear the audible, <laughs> I can hear the audible groans from the North Bank, and I can only apologise that you've got me today. But I will do my best. Uh, I was just trying to think actually about what Arsenal's player manager traditions are like. Um, have we had? We didn't think we had any. No. No. Chelsea had that spell in the 90s where they just kept having them. I don't know if you remember, they had like Hoddle, Hullet and VR. Yeah, back, that was a good back. time. I'm going to cast myself in um, uh, the Doug Leash role and see if I can win the double at my first attempt. So uh, let's yeah. see what... Well, you haven't set the bar high at all, Tyre. Uh, <laughs> but that's fine. Um, I should say we're recording this on Friday morning uh, after not a particularly great week. We had that... Awful display against Liverpool on Sunday and then the pain of conceding a late goal in the Europa League against Slavia Prague. We'll pick the bones out of that. We've also got Random Arse Generator and we'll be going through some of the pieces written by, it says our esteemed guests, but only one of them actually has written a piece. But that's all right. Um, we'll get to that. Before we do that, our opening question... Um, it, one of the worst moments last night, I think, was uh, Alexandra Lacazette bearing down on goal. Uh, I wonder if anyone actually felt confident he was going to bury that um so we were we were wondering with that one-on-one who would you have wanted that to be in an ideal situation uh, uh ex-arsenal players or even current arsenal players uh Teo, i'm going to start with you i think i'd always suggest ian wright for this and um i'm i wrote i made a piece about ian wright um earlier on this year and i was talking to amy um our regular guest on this about it she said that he said to her that people would think that he always scored his one-on-ones the way people talk about it but I genuinely I can't remember him missing I always remember being super confident about him going through on goal um and he's always talked about how in training how David Seaman will tell him where to put the ball about how keepers weren't set right so in my head it's crystallized that Ian Wright never ever missed a one-on-one but I would definitely have thought that if he'd robbed um, a player on the halfway line yesterday and gone through on goal, then we would have been celebrating halfway through. I would have said so as well. I don't, I don't, I don't remember him missing many one-on-ones. I, what he always said to me was, got to work the goalkeeper, Stoney. That's the main thing, work the goalkeeper. They make a save, nothing you can do about it, but work the keeper. What about you, James? Yeah, it's a good question. Before I answer it, can I just ask, did either of you, how did you feel when it was Lacazette going through yesterday? Did you think he was going to score or were you expecting an outcome? I went and made a cup of tea. Right. (laughs) I so didn't expect him, not for one second, not for one solitary moment, did I think, oh, he's going to bury this. I thought he's going to trip over or someone's going to catch him. So, no, I don't know what you felt. Well, I thought about this in stages, um, which is accurate because it seemed to happen in the slowest of installments first of all first of all he he nicks the ball and then you think oh hello and then I thought hold on he's moving quite he's moving quite slowly he's not getting away from this guy and he seemed to think that as well he seemed to think that he wasn't going to get away and that is the kind of panicked finish that I've very much seen myself do on a five-a-side pitch when you're going away from goal he I, I don't think he believed in it as well but even then, even at that point, I was still super surprised at how bad the finish was. Mm. So it's, that being said, James, that who would you said, have chosen? Well, like Tyo, my first thought was Ian Wright. But for the sake of saying something different, I'm going to say Eduardo De Silva. Yes. Great shout. Mm. He, he was like so that. clinical in those situations, you know, especially prior to his injury. 
And I remember a goal, I think it was at Ewood Park against Blackburn, where he went through in similar fashion. And you just ne were never in any doubt. And what Eduardo understood that I think Lacazette sort of failed to grasp yesterday or maybe panicked and overlooked was that you don't have to find the top corner. You don't have to find the bottom corner. You just have to take it early so the goalkeeper's not set and hit the area that is behind him. And there was such a huge gulf of goal for Lacazette to hit yesterday. I think the fact that it comes off the woodwork, in a way it does him a favour. It makes it look slightly better than it is because the the actual reality is he's got a big area of the goal to aim at. The confidence, the lack of, the lack of confidence going through on goal he could, you know, you could feel the defender bearing down on him, and I mean, I mean, contrast that to the anticipation. I was off the sofa when Pepe was mm. was was uh, was bearing down because you knew that he had the, you knew he had the speed, you knew he knew he had the speed to get the right side of of the defender for 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 his goal, and and I'm sure we'll come to that. But what a goal it was! But I just I mentioned that only because of the lack of. Only because of the contrast between him and, uh, and and Lacazette, who at no point felt like he had the confidence, and we never had the confidence in him as well. There's an interesting stat about Lacazette at the moment, which is that I think of of all Arsenal's players, he has the highest shooting percentage accuracy. You know, it's the highest percentage of his shots go on goal. It's seventy five percent in the Premier League. I was told a couple of weeks ago that that's actually the highest total in the Premier League full stop. Doesn't make uh, me highest... feel any better, this, by No, way. no, no. I, and, and I think, actually, it's a really interesting figure because, to me, it's such an outlier and it's so unusual for a centre-forward to have that high shooting accuracy percentage. To me, it suggests he probably doesn't take on enough shots. And I think we see that reflected in his numbers after every game. It suggests that there's kind of a bit of a Goldilocks thing happening with Lacazette where he'll only take the shot on where it's perfectly set for him. And, you know, yeah, he does work the goalkeeper a lot, but maybe he's not prolific enough within that. It's just a sort of an odd um, quirk, I think, uh, of his style of play. Well, two things on that, James. Because um, yesterday there was a very, very wild slash in the yeah. first half, which was which was a good chance for someone, of, mm. especially given what you've just said. But the other thing about him not taking on enough shots, because also in the first half, there was that instant where he picked up the ball off our centre-half or picked up the ball from centre-half. That was, that was surreal, wasn't Bizarre. it? Bizarre. But I think Granit Xhaka was playing, sort of pressing as the centre-forward at the time. Gabriel was still getting back and Lacazette was genuinely sort of 60 yards deep playing next to Rob Holding. And yeah, I think you'll make a very good point on the air shots. I mean... They don't count towards your shot accuracy percentage, so that would. He's explain. had a few though. He's had but a yeah. few though. But you've exactly. got a situation. You've got a situation where he's not taking enough shots, and one of the reasons he's not taking enough shots is because he's got this weird role, hasn't he? Where he's the most like what Arteta wants in his yeah number nine. He's sort of a facilitator, although. But he's I'm, not even that good at that for no. me. So I'm really struggling. So that's why he's not. That's why he's not in the box. But he's also not doing what you'd expect, say, someone like. And, of course, as we know with Theo Walcott, this is called the Theo Walcott syndrome, is when you don't play, you become much better. But um, but Olivier Giroud looks an even better player than he was for us, now that you see mm. what Lacazette is doing in that position. Who would um, you have, Ian, going through on goal? Well, anyone but Lacazette, essentially. Martinelli, without a shadow of a doubt. I'd have Aubameyang, by the way. Oh, that, uh, that's our captain who was on the bench <laughs> when that went on. I'd have Theo Walcott doing it. I'd have Francis Jeffers doing it. I'd have absolutely bloody anyone except Lacazette at that point. And um, I genuinely had no feeling that he was going to score and uh, I don't think anyone else uh, did by the way you can subscribe to the Athletic UK right now for a special price of £3.99 for six months that is 40% off the full price of a subscription you'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts so go to theathletic.com forward slash arsenal pod to take advantage of this special 40% discount that's theathletic.com forward slash arsenal pod and if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
we better beat uh, with the handbrake at time. James, did we underestimate Slavia Prague last night? This is a team that's beaten Rangers uh, and more importantly, I think, beaten Leicester City. Mm. Why should we stroll through against them? I mean, are the fan base deluded as to our talent? I don't think the team or the coach underestimated Slavia Prague. I think there were things we saw in the gameplay that suggested that they were quite prepared or at least wary of what Slavia Prague could do. I think maybe as fans, we underestimate them a little bit. Um, But also, I'm sort of in two minds about this. You know, Slavia Prague, they are a decent team. They are very organised. They press very well. They're a little bit similar to Leeds United in the way that they play. Uh, Very intense, man-to-man. They beat Leicester, who are a better side than us. I'm fairly confident in saying that. Yes. But by the same token... There is still that supporter part of me that looks at it and goes, well, we are Arsenal. We ought to be better. We're not, that mean, but though, we ought James? to be. What does that mean? We're a mid-table team. I mean, you've written about this. We are yeah. a mid-table team. And why should we beat the Czech champions? I mean, the, I mean, the, the, sim- the simple reason why, and I know exactly what you mean, and I'm just explaining that this is kind of an internal conflict that I feel. If you ask me for a practical reason, I would say, look at the wage bills. And then you would say... Well, one William. side should absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But well, Willian accounts for a good chunk of that. But nevertheless, given the expenditure, given the revenue, given the budget of the club, yes, we should be dominating a side with their budget. But you know, we are a team who aren't playing particularly well at the moment. You're absolutely right about that. No, I mean, Tayo, we were so passive. I mean, I mean, you could have the, the first half, you could have just ignored that and started again on half time. I. I mean, why were we so passive? Why did he send them out with such a negative mindset? Was he wary of letting in an away goal? I mean, absolutely, that's 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 an issue, and um, that should be an issue about being wary of an away goal. the 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 question about the passivity of the of the side has been one that's been. I mean, we you know we could have said this about the Liverpool game five days earlier. We could have said that many times over the season. I don't know if the team are going out with a head full of instructions that might be too much for them there is a question about whether there's the right squad for the amount of instructions or to to play the way that Mikel Arteta wants to play but we haven't started a I can't remember the the last time that we started strongly you know Wolves was a very strong start and an absolutely terrible finish but we played well in that first 40 minutes that's very true we have our best spell um, the first five minutes after the second half, again and again. Yeah. Um, but another reason for uh, um, for for that start is that we didn't have our best players out there, and some of that is through injury. Some of that is, was through selection. Emil Smith Rowe came on and had started yesterday and had an energy that we've been lacking in in um, you know the couple of sparkling moments in the first half uh, came from him, um, but. Who would you have expected to who from from the starting lineup yesterday? How do you start any other any other way apart from cautiously? We set out cautiously. We set out with a right back at left back um, because that's where their strongest side was, um, where Slavia Prague's strongest team was, and we started with William, which is a more of a kind of conservative option. Um, in the first place. And another thing that has also been a feature of Mikel Arteta's Arsenal is that we do think about the opposition a lot more than we as Arsenal fans have been used to, given the previous regimes. Um, I think that's a fair point, actually, Ty. And, and and James, if you could pick up on that. Mm. I mean, so many times with Arsene Wenger, we didn't plan for the opposition. The one time when we did, Man City away, we can all name the game when we actually played with a holding midfield player and set up to, to negate them a little bit rather than rather than just going, oh, we'll just do our thing because we're Arsenal and we're better than everyone else. So I, I don't mind that thought about the opposition, but I still come back to, it doesn't stir the blood, does it, what we're doing at the moment? No, and I think it would be, you know, we've said this many times, it it's, would be fascinating to know how fans would be reacting in the ground to the way that Arsenal are playing. You know, when Arsene Wenger was the manager, we used to lament that we didn't prepare enough for the opposition. And it feels like since then, in Unai Emery and Mikel Arteta, we've had guys who are very attentive to that, maybe sometimes at the expense of uh, playing our own game, you know, and asserting yeah. our own identity on the opponent. 
Um, obviously, it's about striking a balance. And I'd say last night was one of those where it felt that that balance wasn't quite right. I think there was real fear about an away goal, fear that was ultimately, you know, all came home to roost <laughs> at the very end in the last five minutes. Oh, um, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But I think there was a bit of fear in that. And when you talk about Lacazette being his own half, clearly... Arsenal were working on some sort of collective, you know, shape that was concerned about how they were going to play out from the back and trying to press them. But it was all very much geared around the opponent. We talked about Cedric being at left back. That's because the right flank is Slavia's strongest side. We didn't necessarily think, well, how can we push that back? Maybe if we put in a more attack-minded player, Bukayo Saka there, yes. that would help. But... There are key absentees too. I don't wish to make excuses. I think Arsenal desperately missed Martin Odegaard last night. I think Arsenal missed David Luiz because a lot of the time it was the centre-halves who had the space, the time on the ball. And I think, you know, if you look at the way Saka was getting in on that right-hand side, if you imagine David Luiz in there instead of Rob Holding, how many more times does that potentially happen? I think maybe quite a few more. So there were absentees. But Kieran some of those absentees, as well. Kieran Tierney is a massive one. But yes. Some of those were decisions as well. And I think, I do think this conversation around Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and what exactly Mikel Arteta's plan for this player is when he approved and pushed for a three-year contract on the highest salary in the club. And yet there doesn't really appear a coherent strategy for how he's going to deploy him and when he's going to deploy him. I think that's a black mark really against the manager. I Listen, Tayo... I- I mean, this is something we can talk about. Let's talk about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. He certainly looked up for it when he came on last night. Every What I found, and I don't know what you think about this, what I found was every time their goalkeeper got the ball, I was desperate to see Aubameyang herring after him because rather than Xhaka, possibly the slowest player on the pitch, pressing at, at the top, because he was he was bad enough when he wasn't put under pressure, that goalkeeper. You imagine with Aubameyang going through the middle... We might have got something out of that. So Arteta has made a big mistake, has he not, with uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and the way he's treated him, the way he, he gave him that large contract, as James said, and then doesn't seem to base the team around him. It would seem so. Um, I think more so than the the pressing angle, you want your best striker getting in and having chances. And he hasn't... He hasn't he was found the other day though, wasn't he against Liverpool? He was anonymous the other day, but Lacazette wasn't a great deal better. Um, the other mm. forward options weren't a great deal better. So you're playing someone who, no, Aubameyang is still the best striker at the club. So it did feel like it wasn't entirely a footballing decision. And if it is a footballing decision, it's one of his own making, as James has said, because we haven't found we haven't found the right position to play our best striker in. Um, and it certainly wasn't on the bench yesterday. So I, I, mean, no. I don't know. You feel like I, um, I said, I've said myself, I, it, it felt like the start of a long goodbye when um, you did say that on Twitter yesterday. I saw it. Um, I said, um, mostly there's a chance to get an Elliot Gould gif out and cause I'm a big fan of Elliot Gould. Um, and it's one of <laughs> okay. my favorite, it's one of my favorite films, but it did, it was, it was relevant in the sense that ever since the, I mean, not, not, not harking back too much, but you know, dropping your captain for the North London Derby for being late is symptomatic of something else. And it sends out a certain impression to him and leaving him out for the one big game left that we have this season and next week aside also seems like it was more than just a tactical decision. There's a problem there, but I'm not going to have a go at him for giving him the contract because we all wanted him to do that. No, no, no. I, I think that was absolutely fair enough. We've got a couple, by the way, a couple of um, questions from the um, from the general public who have written in uh, on Twitter to uh, uh, with a few little suggestions uh tony d essex tone at essex tone ask arsenal often play a very pedestrian keep ball style of play is this due to arteta not having the players he wants or is it the fault of either the players or the manager and the follow-up question is it likely to improve once the squad has players that arteta has bought in james it is pedestrian isn't it it is pedestrian at the moment and uh you know how you apportion blame between players and manager is is always a difficult one. I think your evaluation of the manager probably depends on your how you see the potential of this group. Um, I think often my biggest emotion when Arsenal perform badly at the moment, when my main reaction to it is my surprise at people's 
surprise. I feel like the gap yes. between our best and worst performances in the course of this season isn't that enormous. And actually, we characterise the team as inconsistent, but there is actually a certain degree of consistency about what they produce <laughs> yeah. uh, in that it's it's pretty average. Um, and and I, I think of what this group achieved under the previous manager, Unai Emery, and I, I struggle to say that we're going backwards. But it's... It's also fair to question, I think, whether we're going forwards quickly enough. Um, well, today, in the light of yesterday's performance and the Liverpool performance, you know, it doesn't feel like it. I mean, just following on from that then, Tom Rainsley-Hughes wrote to us, is Arteta getting an easier ride from the fans and pundits because he's an ex-player? And he said, I have to believe that if this season was being managed by Emery, then there would be more talk of him being fired rather than trusting the process. I think that's a fair point, is it not, Tyo? Yeah, I think I, th- I think so. I think there's an element of a holding pattern this season anyway, not least because we none of us have been in the ground. So mm. it doesn't quite feel as real or as urgent um, as it would if the season was in, in full flow. I do think it's a fair point about Emery, um, but I think that's been the case for a while. But I think there's something about... Um, being a fan in the same sense that uh, Dave Meldrum tweeted me this morning to say, when do we get to criticise Thomas Partey, for example? If Shaka had been playing as poorly as he'd been, then we'd, he'd have been mercilessly rounded on. Now, I see the point that he's trying to make. It's because we want Arteta to do well. It's because we've had the Emery experiment and we want Arteta to do well. And if you are a fan favourite, then you get more time. The cracks are beginning to show. I think there's enough dissenting voices now who are beginning to wonder whether the process is actually what you know what that actually means. We don't seem, as James said, we don't seem to be going forward in 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 some ways. So I think it's perfectly fair to criticise certain aspects of Arteta's play. I think the fact that he is passive towards and is too aware of the opposition is a thing. I think he does make his substitutions too late. Yep. I do think that there's a issue with his non-negotiables and how the squad are reacting to them, rightly or wrongly, whoever's to blame there or not. But it's not really about blame anymore, is it? It's about trying to find a way to work with modern players and modern management um, in a way that, for example... The players seem to love Jurgen Klopp or the way that they love Nuno at Wolves. Neither mm. neither team of which, by the way, are doing that well at the moment. But I totally take your point, uh, Tayo. I wanted to talk, you mentioned the subs there. There's a couple of things I wanted to ask you, James. Bringing on the subs so late, I mean, you yeah. can almost set your watch after 70 minutes. I mean, Arsene Wenger used to be, what, 67 to 73, I think it was. Mm-hmm. But but there was there was certainly a case for making changes before half-time or certainly two minutes into the second half. He waited until the 70th minute. I thought there was a certain pointed thing about bringing on Martinelli before he brought Aubameyang on. Uh, And also, I wanted to ask you, I know it's a separate thing, but their goal, their goal started by Cedric turning back towards his own goal and putting Gabriel in trouble, which led to a throw, which led to a corner, which led to their goal. It's... It's a negativity, it's it's a passivity, it's that word again, I can't really think of another word, where he is, he's not affecting the game quickly enough and the players are nervous. Yeah, I mean, on, on the substitutions point, I think it was pretty clear from early in the first half that there was space in behind the Slavia defence. You know, Saka was the guy getting into it. But as soon as we added Martinelli or Aubameyang or potentially Pepe, we had another way to go, another route to go. And Lacazette's not that guy. You know, Willian's not that guy who's going to run in behind, it seems, especially playing from the left. So I did find it curious that we wait so long to introduce those players. I mean, had they come on, you know, even 10 minutes earlier, it might have really swung the tie in Arsenal's favour. All that said, as frustrating as the first 77 minutes was in this game, we do eventually get the goal, and it's a really brilliant goal. Yeah. Aubameyang, I think, does the sort of work there that he's often yeah. criticised for not doing. You know, That's what you would expect to see Lacazette picked for, to kind of win the ball and play him in. And Pepe's finish, 
I think he shows what Saka still has to learn, which is that icy coolness in front of goal. And it, I mean, Lacazette should watch that finish. It's not about how clean he strikes the ball. It's just about having that deft touch to put it beyond the goalkeeper. And I feel desperately sorry for Pepe, by the way, because I feel like every time he has a really good breakthrough moment, Arsenal turn around and shoot themselves in the foot. <laughs> Um, so they keep getting overlooked but to come on to your second question about Cedric there's a screen grab doing the rounds on social media I'm sure everybody's seen it of 92 minutes on the clock Cedric's got the ball in the left back position plenty of green grass ahead of him all he's got to do is drive into that instead he turns around probably partly to do the fact that he's playing on the wrong side goes on his, his preferred right foot plays it back to Gabriel Gabriel takes a heavy touch we lose the ball and we go on to concede the goal I mean as as bad as we were for 77 minutes, conceding having taken the lead, I think is really, I want to say almost unforgivable. It's a criminal thing to do because the the difference in what it means to win this match 1-0 to 1-1 due to the weight of the away goal is absolutely huge. It's very easy today and we've done it and so has everyone else to pile in on on. On the manager, um, yeah, but that's a bad. I mean, that's that's just dumbass football. Bad, bad that's decision. Just, that's on that's, the part of him. Yeah, that's bad football. And you can, and I guess a counter argument would be, well, he's making that decision because of. I wonder whether they was making that decision because of a head full of instructions and we play, Arsenal play a certain way and um mm. and you met you know and. And and we've seen you know we we saw that rash of goals that we gave away from 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 even more rank defensive errors, and then just talking about personnel, maybe we have an issue there because David Luiz can play the ball a bit a, a bit better than um than Gabriel can, um than than Rob Holding can. But really, there that 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 that's a bad mistake or a lack of confidence from from Cedric, and yeah, there's a there's there's a reason for that which is not always the manager's fault, is it? No, I was just going to say, sales of Just For Men in the Hertfordshire area must be through the roof because how Mikel Arteta hasn't got a grey hair yet? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's give it another six months. Give it another six yeah. months. One more question uh, before we move on. Uh, Kevin Doherty contacted me on Twitter. Uh, good managers coach players to be better. Klopp, Pep, Rogers, Dean Smith. Uh, he said, not sure which Arsenal players are improving. Some seem to be going backwards. I mean, this comes back to Mikel Arteta. I think some of the younger kids have come in, uh, James, and have done well. But with the senior pros, do you see much improvement from, from Mikel Arteta's coaching? It's very. It's always difficult to speak in the light of a, a, a really poor result and poor... Week, I think there have actually been improvements. I would sort of, I would say, for example, Granite Shaka, I think is actually a better player under Mikel Arteta than he was under either Arsene Wenger or uh, Unai Emery. Not to say he's a perfect player, he's still flawed, but I think he's better than he was. Um, beyond that, I'm sort of struggling. Yeah. You know, I think Rob Holdings had good moments, um, but yeah, it does get it does get tough. Uh, but I, I think that says maybe more about the team than the individuals. I do think to what extent the way the team is set up is enabling some of these individuals to shine. That's the I coach, think, though. That's the coach, yeah. though, isn't it? And, and it's interesting enough, James. Bumpy Lanes continued on that theme. Arsenal fans wanted to see more tactics, good coaching. We thought that was the problem, that we had the talent, but the game had moved on and we needed something else to lift that talent higher. Were we mistaken? About the level of talent that we have within the squad? Yes. Well, also, is good management more valuable than good coaching? Uh, well, that's a really interesting question because, I mean, footballers know. Footballers know if a guy can coach. And these Arsenal players, I I remain uh, certain, believe that Mikel Arteta can coach. Whether that is the same as management and whether that is enough to get you results. I mean, football is littered with people who are highly successful assistants or training ground coaches who do not make the transition to being the number one guy. Steve McLaren. <laughs> it is <laughs> to an give example, you one name. But, you know, Brian me. Kidd, there are so many more people who are brilliant technical thinkers about the game who don't always grasp the wider job. And the thing is, it's possible that Mikel Arteta will be one of those guys. Um, 
it's it's the tricky thing is it's sort of early to say, and I know that might sound ludicrous for a guy who's been in the job for you know uh, quite a long time at this point, but because it's so early in his managerial career, because there's no history to look back on or draw upon, it's still early days for him. And the question becomes, how long are Arsenal prepared to wait to see if he fulfills the potential he may have? You know, it's part of the the beauty of appointing Mikel Arteta is that you can project all these things onto him, that he might be the next Pep Guardiola, that he might be kind of, you know, the love child of Wenger and Pep and have all those attributes and qualities. But if that's the case, like any professional in any job, it's probably going to take more than two years for that all to come to the fore. And are Arsenal prepared to be the guinea pig in that situation? That kind of rounds it, James, though, back to the question about um, expectations for expectations for Arsenal and, yeah. and whether we trust the the process whether we <laughs> trust, trust the, process. the process or not yeah. you know there isn't there isn't a blueprint now for a 8 to 10 year cycle for a manager an 8 to 10 year running track for a manager to warm up on do you know what no. I mean no um, and we're asking because we saw that with um, the age that we are and the experience that we've had with Sir Alex Ferguson and our own Arsene Wenger um, even you know I mean we grew up in an era of um you know, Sam Allardyce was at a club for a certain amount of time. David mm-hmm. Moyes was at a club for a certain amount of time. I, nobody, nobody is anymore. <laughs> nobody well, certainly is. not. And you are asking, and you're asking someone to be a coach. Great, but I, there does seem to be an issue where, if the coach isn't getting his instructions across, then that's where the cross between a coach and a manager needs to be a lot more synergized basically because I think there's a reason why we expect more from these players because we're looking at these technically adept players and then getting very frustrated when they're not when they don't seem to be playing to what we expect their ability to be so then you'll start asking questions about and if Mikel Arteta is this coach that that he's supposed to be Mm. then why isn't he getting that out of the players why is he saying the same things over and over again why are we making the same mistakes over and over again Mm. It's maddening. <laughs> one more question. One more question, which both of you can answer. But James, you were jokingly tweeting that our game was really the big game of the week when um, they were B- yeah. BT Sport were trailing it during the PSG versus Bayern Munich game, which, by the way, is worth watching. Um, I mean, I watched that game and I thought to myself, I'm not sure a single Arsenal player would get in either of these teams. We are miles behind. And as much as Tayo talks about the technical ability of our players, um, I don't think any of the players on on the pitch. Saka would be a squad player for Bayern Munich or PSG, but I don't think anyone else would get near that team, would they? And we have come, we have fallen so far behind now. Do you have faith that we can get back to that level? Well, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because the end game, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, is getting back in the Champions League. But I, like <laughs> you, I I watched that game and thought. Yeah, absolutely murdered in that competition. I mean, <laughs> killed. I don't know. I don't know what your people's expectations would be if we got back into the group stage. But I suspect the best we could probably hope for is third place finish in the group and nip back into the Europa <laughs> that's, League. That's where we're at. We used to we beat Slavia Prague. They were showing it before the game. We beat Slavia Prague seven 0 at home in the Champions League the last time they came to the Emirates. Day. Yes, and Cesc Fabregas was playing, and what a player he was. And Emmanuel Adebayor. And we may have hated him, but he's better than any forward we've got right now, as far as I can tell. And um, we are so so far behind. Tim Stillman wrote a very interesting blog about rebuilding the club. Um, do either of you think that the guys we've got are capable of doing that job? I saw something quite funny there. It made, made me laugh anyway the other day. We are now a sleeping giant. Yeah. <laughs> Comatose we, is what we are. Arguably. But um, the big question I'm interested in, and I know Amy doesn't think that there's money to be spent, but we can't do any of that rebuilding any further if we're as cash strapped as we as we very much might be after a couple of years of the pandemic after um the the fact that we're falling further and further away from the champions league that we mentioned so is there money to rebuild or are we stuck in this kind of cycle now so it'll yeah. be quite interesting to see what um what happens um if we can make the replacements it's easy to say it's easy for us to sit here and say we need an upgrade and center forward 
for example. But where's the money coming from? So mm. therefore, I don't know if it's possible to answer your question with anything more than fan optimism, Ian. I think that's a great point. Yeah, and can I just say, I think that is the thing that maybe tempers my expectations more than anything else because Arsenal are in a position where, as Josh Kroenke has said, they're a Europa League club playing Champions League wages. The longer they stay out of the Champions League, the longer that's going to be case, the more money they're going to continue to hemorrhage, essentially. So we can all look at it now and say changes need to be made. But all those changes, as Ty says, cost. And the prospect of us doing that this summer with the year that they've had financially and with the owners that we have and we know about their lack of record of putting money into the club, I, I, you know, I think we have to be realistic about how much better it can get in the space of a few months. <laughs> a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. Ian Stone here with James McNicholas, Tayo Papula, and now Art De Roche, who's joined us. Hello, Art. Hi, guys. Uh, Hello. <laughs> Almost Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang levels of uh, of timekeeping here. Ex- excellent work. <laughs> Art is actually sitting. He's do- he's doing this uh, sitting in his Ferrari. He's just revving it up uh, outside. He's going to drive away straight after the game, uh, straight after the pod, I imagine. Um, Art, you wrote, a p- <laughs> you wrote a piece. You'd be fine. I'll tell you what, if this was Mikel Arteta running this podcast, you'd be in a lot of trouble. You'd be benched for the next three. Um <laughs> Um, Art, you wrote a piece about the game last night. Um, Arsenal's lack of control, sloppy passing and late Arteta subs uh, undermined good parts of their game. We've talked quite a lot uh, about uh, about the uh, the substitutions. Um, the tactical, the way that Arsenal set up tactically, it didn't seem to produce a lot in the first half. It got a bit better once the subs came on, but... It, we've been taught, we've mentioned the word passivity more than once today. Um, is that how you saw it? Yeah, I think when when I was so when I was discussing say the tactical aspect of that game last night, it, it was more uh, looking at what Arsenal were doing without the ball. And again, that probably shows you what <laughs> what it was like at the game last night. Um, of course, you guys could see it over the TV. Arsenal didn't really have much control when they had the ball, um, but what was standing out most to me was when whenever the ball went back to the Slavia Prague goalkeeper there were four Arsenal players almost in a wall on the edge of their box almost daring him to 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 make a pass and um there were times where that worked well and i think um what was maybe um where they missed a the trick sorry was maybe not putting as much pressure on him directly to, to force him into making those errors because there were times where, um, say they did go into that pressing routine, they'd wait on the edge of the Slavia box and he uh, the goalkeeper would maybe uh, kick the ball out of play or yeah. make, a, make a dodgy pass. And that's those are the moments I feel where, um, I guess, passivity is maybe the word, but where... Arsenal could have been a bit more adventurous in that side of the game but also in terms of when they did have the ball um, it seemed like from watching from the press box um, there was a lot of movement on the left hand side so Emil Smith-Rowe and Willian were interchanging a lot but Mm. the ball just wasn't coming to them Um, a lot of focus was on the right hand side instead with Rob Holden and Bukayo Saka and Thomas Partey wasn't really assisting them as much as usual. And I think that really took its toll because even though Rob Holden was able to create a really good chance for Saka in the first half, um, it wasn't often enough. And uh, that's where I think, like myself and you guys, probably saw that maybe passive nature that, that really uh, took its toll over the course of the game. Can I just ask something? Because uh, you, James, and you are have been in the stadium um, certainly more than the rest of us. What was it like last night? Uh, what was it like 
on the pitch? Was there an energy from the players at the start of the game? Was there a, did it, um, where, where did that passivity come from? You can perceive that all the time through the TV, but is there a, is there a nervous energy or, or lack of energy in, um, in the ground on the players at the time? And um, what is the effect still of, um, of, of no fans being in there on that? I think especially over the, well, when um, Arsenal were going through that terrible spell in November, December, it felt like rather than uh, going to, into games and having that excitement, uh, once the game had started, it almost felt like it was a, a countdown, if that makes sense. So um, you almost immediately get that nervous energy because you're conscious of how much time is left. And I think when Arsenal start games slowly, that effect becomes even more evident. And that that was the case last night, I do feel, because uh, even though, say, Bukayo Saka had his chance and um, Lacazette also in the second half, there were moments throughout the game where Slavia Prague had their moments too. And that's when I think the element of... um, being conscious of time comes comes into play and I think that's where I guess the nervous energy comes in a bit more uh, but then when you look at games where Arsenal have performed much better I think you lose you lose track of that time element and players are maybe a bit more free to do to do what they actually want to do I mean even it, um, in so in the second half, before uh, the substitutions were made, there were a few instances where, say, Willian hits a simple pass straight out of play. Um, there are a few other moments where players just make simple mistakes and it it felt like they were almost thinking too much about what they were going to do. Um, whereas I'm not sure that would have been the case if, say, um, they had gone ahead earlier and then had um had a platform to build off but um that that's kind of how i put it into words i'm not sure if james feels different <laughs> well i want i want to come to james because i know you wrote a piece uh, uh, as well about last night with amy um mm. one of the things one of the people you talked about who we haven't really mentioned much uh, we missed him on um Sunday against Liverpool, and we also missed him uh, last night, was David Luiz, and it's his passing uh, that opens the game up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, Art talked about that, the right-hand side. Clearly, Saka had the better of their fullback. He had the timing, he had the speed to get him behind there. But that wasn't as joined up a flank as it should have been, and part of that was down to the absence of Luiz. I think a lot of it is down to the absence of Martin Odegaard as well, who's a guy who's comfortable drifting out to that flank and... You know, Thomas Partey didn't have his best game in Arsenal shirt by any measure at all, really. But I think Odegaard's a really important player for him. They combine pretty well, usually. He finds him frequently. So his absence there was a factor. I just think the Louise situation is kind of a perfect encapsulation of Arsenal and, and where they are at this point. You know, I think there is a, a, a feeling, and an understandable feeling, about players like Louise and maybe to an extent Shaka that they're sort of not really good enough for Arsenal. But it sort of reminds me of a guy down a pub, you know, sort of complaining about, I don't know, his missus. And you feel like turning around and saying, have you had a look at yourself? (laughs) I mean, Arsenal are sort of pretty dependent on these players. And in their absence, you feel it very keenly. And there's a a kind of irony in Arsenal becoming entirely dependent on two fairly unreliable players. But that is kind of the encapsulation of where we are at the present time. And... It's a particularly interesting discussion, given that a decision about Dav Luiz's contract is imminent. You know. Well, where Art? I mean, where we also are at the moment is that when Kieran Tin is injured, we have no replacement for him. And one of the things you talked about was that Cedric having. I mean, we we mentioned it before you got here. Cedric having to turn back because he's on his wrong foot. Arsenal. A club the size of Arsenal should not be in a position where we are so reliant on two or three players. No, they shouldn't. And I think what was uh, something that I noticed before kickoff was so obviously uh, Miguel Aziz was there, but he's a central midfielder. Uh, but also Joel Lopez, uh, the under 23s left back, was on the bench actually for the game. Um, so I think 
even though Cedric started there, I, I do wonder if there will be a point in the next couple of weeks where Mikel Arteta does feel the need to maybe put a left-footed player back at left-back. Obviously, I think uh, Bukayo Saka would probably be the first choice for that. Yes. Um, but then you kind of risk losing what he brings on the right. That being said, I do feel that especially since the turn of the year, Nicola Pepe has proven that he can uh, provide maybe not the same uh, type of uh, play as Saka from the right, but he can still be very effective off the right. He showed that last night with his, with his goal, but he has also proven that coming off the bench against Tottenham to play the pass for the penalty and against West Ham to assist Lacazette's equaliser, as well as performing quite well when he started against Leicester uh, in February. And I think um, if Mikel Arteta does decide to move Bukayo Saka back to left back, then there shouldn't be too much of a problem because Nicola Pepe has shown over recent weeks that he can take that role seriously <laughs> and and perform uh, to, to a respectable degree. Uh, and if Arsenal are lacking that natural left footer at left back, then it, it just offsets the whole balance of the team, really. And I think um, that's something maybe it wasn't as... Um, crucial in the first leg because there is still the second leg to play but next Thursday especially uh, Mikata does have to get that decision right Four games until we're back in the Champions League lads, four games <laughs> very very excited the prospect already, already booked my seat on the sofa, I don't know we might be allowed back in the grounds to be honest with you I can't wait to see us get absolutely thrashed by Galatasaray or someone anyway, let's um uh, let's do something happier times. Uh, Teo, our producer and Erst, and now sometime uh, presenter on this show, um, we uh, we were talking about the random ass generator, or rather, he tweeted about a player that he particularly loved, and I said we should do him for random ass generator. So I should, you know, it's a slight disclosure here that I have had advance notice of who this is. Uh, but the random ass uh, generator this week has come up with a brilliant Carnu. Uh, Tay, I'm going to come to you first, just because you actually tweeted about Carnu and what a wonderful player he was. Try and keep this to one anecdote for no longer than about half an hour, okay? If you could possibly manage. Uh, I have a particular love for Carnu as he's um, um, a, as a Nigerian, and I tweeted about um, an Ajax moment which happened on this day with with, with some control, some kind of time divine control. But I'm going to start off this random mass generator with one of my favourite moments which happened in Europe and we've mentioned it before because it is one of my favourite goals but not by Thierry Henry or, or Ian Wright it is the Juju goal as I call mm. it which yeah. is uh, Kanu <laughs> against Deportivo, Deportivo La Coruña yeah. where he just with just a the faintest of swivels of his snake hips sent um, the Deportivo goalkeeper one way and the ball just rolled into the net and he didn't even have to touch it. And that is just clearly one of my favourite moments from one of my favourite players. It's lovely. It's a lovely, lovely moment. And what the thing I remember most about it was it's 38,000 people at Highbury all laughing, all just actually laughing, going, did, we, did that actually happen? Um, Art, you were young, so I'm not sure you, you have too many particular memories of Carnu, uh, of but you obviously saw him play. Anything you'd like to add to this? He had massive feet, from what I remember. <laughs> uh, were they size 12s or something like that? Or 15 was the legend. I don't know if it's true. Really? But yeah. Yeah. Size 15 so was the tool. That is one... I think uh, how skillful he was is probably a surprise given how, how big his feet were. Yeah, because you, you often say, didn't you, good feet for a big man. But nobody ever said that about Carnu because he was big so good. Big feet for a good man. Exactly. Big feet for a good man, exactly. James, what about you? A Carnu memory? Oh, I've got so many. I have to say, I wrote about Carnu a couple of weeks ago. We did a series on The Athletic um, about modern cult heroes. And I said I was going to write about Carnu because he was a player I adored. And you speak about laughing at that uh, goal against Deportivo. Carnu is... Uh, the rarest of things a footballer who did many many things that I had never seen before and who played football almost like an alien like it was like he had arrived in football without yeah. having progressed through you know the conventional academy system and he just thought about the game completely differently but one of the people I spoke to about him was 
uh, Lee Dixon, who we all know well. And what struck me about what Lee said was, he was a very spindly looking guy, Carnu, but Lee spoke about how strong he was. And he said he was like he was made of iron. Like his frame, you couldn't get near him. And he used to sort of put his leg between you and the ball. And that was it. It was over. You just couldn't get round him. And I think he spoke about his body being like as hard as steel. And it's interesting because we we think of him as a very kind of <clears throat> laid back guy, a very skillful player. But he was also about six foot five. And although lean, seemingly very powerful. So I just think that's an interesting aspect of his game that I hadn't really considered. Yeah. I mean, the feet must help, mustn't they? You know, the feet must of, help. Just to how solid... Lee eulogised about Carney because he basically said, as a as a as a defender, he was a dream because you could boot the ball up to him, and he'd give you a break. He'd give you a chance to get your breath back because he could hold it and he had the skill, he had the ability. And he said in training, he would do everything he could for the like six aside games they play in training to get on Carney's team just because it made your life so much easier because <laughs> he would just stand in the middle of the pitch. You could give it to him. He'd hang on to it for two or three minutes, you know, and and just control the game completely. I mean, uh, another goal that obviously lives long in the memory is the one against Middlesbrough where the cross comes in for the right-hand side. I think it's Ray Parler. And he just sort of does a kind of drag back first time through his legs into the far bottom corner. Again, at that time in England, in the Premier League, you'd never seen anything like that. I think you'd be surprised to know that Carnu only scored 30 goals for Arsenal. Wow. Actually, yeah. that doesn't surprise me because I, I, I'm actually thinking about, oh, goals. But it's not about goals for me. It was about the fact that when he got the ball, and James, you, of course, alluded to this, and Dicko would have thought this as well. He got the ball and, and people, you know that scene in Gladiator, right, where where um, where Russell, Russell Crowe comes out. It's in the Moroccan one, right, in the little gladiatorial thing. And Russell Crowe comes out and the six guys who are going to try and kill him all take a step back right because mm. they have a certain respect and i feel kanu made that sort of space on a football field right i just feel that he as soon as he got the ball nobody dived in because they knew they'd be made to look a fool so i don't i'm not really thinking so much about goals for arsenal i just loved watching him play and like james said he looked like he played football at a different different pace a different sort it's of game to everyone else have him on the pitch 92nd minute last night cedric give him the ball you just see it out. He, but yeah, he, I mean, yes. Luke Young as well. I think we... Did we speak about that on here? Was it the Luke goal, Young who yeah. he destroyed at White yes. Hart Lane, knocked the ball over his head? I mean, the goals are very memorable, which probably makes you think there were more of them. But we can't let this conversation pass without talking about the Chelsea game, right? In the rain where he turned it round with the hat. <laughs> Go on then. I think we should talk about the Chelsea game. That was We were 2-0 down after two 75 minutes. Yes. Carney started the game, sort of wasn't really in it. 75 minutes. It was a very wet day. The sort of ball was holding up a little bit. And again, he seemed to have that intelligence where he seemed to sort of immediately understand that and how he had to adapt his touch accordingly. He scores a couple of goals, very good goals in themselves. But it's the winner where he kind of, you know, he strides off down the left-hand side. Ed De Hoy does us a favour by charging about 18 yards out of his goal along the touchline. But then he's got the drag back to beat him and an outrageous finish from the most of acute most acute of angles bending it into the far top corner i mean it's yeah, sort it of fairy tale stuff and he was he was a kind of fairy tale ridiculous player i've never seen a footballer quite like him and and i think you know he he was sort of unfortunate in a way because he played for arsenal in a time where we also had dennis burkamp and we also had thierry Henry. and that probably meant he played a lot less and scored a lot less than he might have otherwise done. I think that um, that Chelsea, that the Chelsea winner, I remember when I first saw it and the second time I saw it, you almost think it was an accident that, mm. you know, it, it was an un, it was an, a lucky ricochet that the ball ended up at his feet. But as you say, James, like he just carried on doing that. The two centre-aisles on the line had won the World Cup about six months previously. Frank Leboeuf and Marcel Desailly. He didn't do that to just any team. This was Chelsea away, and the two guys were were ec- excellent centre halves, and he made them look like idiots. So I think it's worth bearing in mind how good the opposition was when he did that. You wanted to talk about that that Ajax goal. That was what first 
got me thinking about this conversation. And it was only when I looked at that Ajax goal again that I realised he was in total control of that situation for the whole time. The Ajax goal is something that he did time and time again, um, not least in the Olympics in 96, when Nigeria won the gold and... I truly fell in love with him. And the ball comes to his feet in in the 88th minute or something like that. And just so often, time stopped. And therefore, it was something that he did. In the same way that you see that, um, like, the Messi trademark is the stop, as we've seen ourselves with Almunia falling over and many other better keepers doing it ever since. But stopping the play, stopping time, on and or making things happen at their own pace. And Kanu did that again and again um and um you did say one anecdote but just just to take away from the love in slightly another very memorable arsenal carnu moment um happened against our opponents uh, this weekend sheffield united which oh, con- yeah. which coincide which um his debut his debut which ended up with uh, the match being replayed as he chased down a throw-in, didn't he? Sheffield United were giving... No, we gave the ball back to Sheffield United. He chased the ball down, um, to which uh, Overmars... <laughs> Overmars, <laughs> it for Overmars, who didn't yeah. have the excuse of it being his first game and didn't think anything... Should have known better. <laughs> ...of putting the ball in the net. But that, um, that FA Cup game ended up being replayed. I always found that strange, by the way, that, that the idea that... You know, he came from Italy and he'd been playing in Holland previously with Ajax. That in those countries, they just don't give the ball back after an injury. I always found that slightly unusual, but it seemed like a very useful excuse at any rate. But I can't allow the conversation of Carney to pass without talking about he scored some miraculous goals. But the real miracle was that he had a career. I mean, we we signed Carney and Arsene Wenger at the press conference spoke about it being a risk, but the, the talent of the player being worth the risk. I mean, he had a very, very serious heart condition and it was undetected for most of his young career. He went to Inter Milan, signed for them. That was his big move. You know, he'd had the Olympics that summer, was set to start Serie A. They, they have a routine series of medicals on the eve of the Italian season um, that they have to undertake for insurance reasons. And they turn up this heart condition. And Inter absolutely apoplectic. They couldn't believe it. They said any routine medical exam should have shown you that he had this faulty valve in his heart. And frankly, they considered it very lucky, very fortunate that he had got to that point in his life, I think he was 23 at the time, um, without dying, without suffering a very serious, serious accident. Then he goes to America, has an operation. Again, at that point, nobody is even able to say whether he'll ever be permitted to return to competition, to ever be permitted to play again. And Carney's a very religious guy. He put his faith in God. He said, you know, it's in God's hands. And he always had that faith. He always had that conviction. The fact that he mounted the comeback that he did, not only that, went on to play for about another, you know, 15 years. I mean, he was at Portsmouth, God knows how long. He's quite extraordinary and and on top of that the work he's done with his foundation the Kanu Hart Foundation I mean they've saved thousands of lives so there is a bigger story here outside of what he achieved in football which is I think all the more special um you know what I don't think we can top that really should we get a should we get a song before we go um oh I'm going to come to you first we have a song for uh just maybe looking at the way Arsenal have been in the last few weeks. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to go for a bespoke one today, actually. Um, Kanye West, late. <laughs> and I think we know why. Stop your crying, baby. I'll be late for that, baby. I'll wait for that. If you had a taste of that, you'd probably pay for that. I'm coming in when I feel right. To turn this mob up only if it feels right. I'll be late for that. I can't wait for that. I think I was made for that. So I'm coming in when I feel right. To turn this mob up only if it feels right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Can I, um, I'm going to, um, I'm going to have uh, Iggy Pop. I'm bored basically, because I'm a little bit bored with it now, if I'm totally honest with you. I was uh, I was all about trusting the process, but it's hard to uh, to keep that faith. James, uh, actually, no, Teo, I'll, I'll come to you first. Teo, 
There's a Marvin Gaye song called Where Are We Going, produced by the Mazel Brothers, who I'm a big fan of. So it, it, it feels apt. I'm going Marvin James, what about you? Uh, I'm going to go with Trust the Process by... <laughs> no, there is... <laughs> uh, I was actually thinking along the same lines as art, but even more melancholic. I actually had Carol King, It's Too Late. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if we can we'd do that to our listeners, because they're feeling sad enough as it is. Great tune. Um, yeah. Okay, that's uh, been Handbrake of the Arsenal podcast, brought to you by The Athletic. Thanks to our guest, James McNicholas, Art de Roche and uh, and our producer guest uh, Teo Papula as well uh, will be here next week. Uh, thank you very much for listening. I'm Ian Stone. See you soon. Mm-hmm.